You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 7 and we'll read through verse 11 before we open in prayer. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's open our time in prayer for God. Father, we have been led in worship this morning, and now we come to your word, and we pray that you and your spirit would lead us into all truth, that you would guide our thoughts, our understanding, our hearts, that they would be laid open and bare before you, and that you would reveal to us the secret things that are in our hearts, and reveal to us also the wonderful things that are in your word, and show us how your word applies to us, and and how it convicts us. We commit this time to you with the confident expectation that we will not commit it to you in vain, but that you will be here to speak through your word to us, your people. We stand ready and waiting and with eager hearts, and so we ask that it would be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come in the book of Philippians, when you arrive at chapter 3, verse 9, that verse that came sort of in the middle of our scripture reading, we come to what is, I think, the zenith theologically of the book of Philippians. We sort of sort of crept up on it a little bit. You didn't really see it coming. I mean, one minute we're talking about Paul and his credentials and the things that he boasted in and counting all things but rubbish and what he lost for Christ, and then all of a sudden you're stuck, struck with Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 is one of those verses in the Bible that could easily justify an entire series of messages all by itself. But you will be pleased to know that in the exercise of self-control, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have a little mini-series on Philippians 3, verse 9. It is a verse that is so, I think, awe-inspiring, Christ-exalting, confidence-building, worship-inspiring verses in all of the Scriptures. It's one of those verses. It is so profoundly deep, so marvelously broad, its implications are so staggering that when you begin to ask yourself, what is the Apostle Paul teaching in Philippians 3, verse 9, which is our text for this morning? What is he teaching and how does that apply to my life? I I felt like this week, and I shared this with Deidre during the week, I felt like an ant at the base of Mount Everest. And my job was to climb up the mountain and then cut back down and tell the other ants what Mount Everest is like. That's how I feel trying to tackle Philippians 3, verse 9. To be honest with you, I don't even know where to, how to start this. I don't even know where to go with it. I'm not even sure where to end it or if I could end it because I don't think that Philippians 3, verse 9 could be exhausted even in a lifetime of preaching. So I'm not going to try to. But what I do want to do is, by the grace of God, at least unfold this on some level so that we can be awed and inspired by it and appreciate all of the implications of what Paul says in this text. This verse, Philippians 3, verse 9, 
is a verse that is itself at the heart of the gospel itself. If you were, if I were to ask you this question, what is the most theological book in the New Testament? What is the most theological book in all of the New Testament? The book that is so packed with theology, so jam-packed with theology, where it's just a, a logical, sequential, very rational, reasonable argument all the way through the book. What book would it be? How many of you would say the book of Romans? I hope that's what you would say, and you would be right. That is by far the most theological book in all of the New Testament. Philippians 3, verse 9, if you were looking for one sentence to sum up the entire message of the book of Romans, it would be Philippians 3, verse 9. You couldn't do any better. That I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness which is through the faithfulness or faith of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the whole book of Romans. The whole book of Romans is written to spell out that one thing. How can I be found in Christ not having my own righteousness derived from the law or from any other source, but a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith? I need to be righteous. That's what Romans answers. How can God treat me, a sinner, as if I were His Son? How can that happen? How can God look with favor upon me, a guilty criminal? I have violated His law. I have sinned against heaven. I have thwarted His rule. I have blasphemed His name. I have cursed Him in my life. I have not lived up to the standards of the law and loved my God with all my heart, my soul, mind, and strength for all of my life. I have failed miserably and I'm guilty in the courts of heaven. So how can God treat me, a guilty criminal, as if I am innocent? And that is the question not only of the book of Romans, but all of the Bible. In the Old Testament, you go back to the animal sacrifices. And this is what men wrestled with. How can I be just in the sight of God? He is righteous and I'm not. So the animal sacrifices foretold that and foreshadowed that and pictured that that something innocent would die in the place of some guilty one and God could on the basis of that death treat the guilty as if he was innocent because he treated the innocent as if he is guilty. That's the book of Romans. That's Philippians 3.9. Philippians 3.9 is also at the heart of the Gospel. And the heart of the Reformation. Never ask yourself, why do Protestants and Catholics not get together? Why has there been a division between Protestants and Catholics now for 500 years? Why is that? Is it because as Protestants we don't like the Pope? Is it because as Protestants we just don't want to bow the knee to some higher authority and we all want to be autonomous and we want to be our own kings? Is that it? Is it that we just don't like the incense and the smell of it? We don't want to have to go to Rome? Is that the reason why there's a division between Protestants and Catholics? No. The heart of the issue between Protestants and Catholics is Philippians 3, verse 9. How am I declared righteous in the sight of God? Is it because God infuses me with righteousness so that I act righteous and make myself righteous in His sight? Or is it because God just simply says, Osman, you're righteous. All the righteousness you need, all the righteousness you could ever want, all the righteousness I would ever demand, it's yours on the basis of faith and faith alone. You are justified. You are innocent. Not guilty in the courts of heaven. No condemnation ever for you because you're in My Son. Which one is it? Is it that God declares me righteous or is it that God makes me righteous and I'm able then to gain His favor by living righteously? Two entirely different camps. Protestants, and Catholics, and just in case you're confused as to who believes what, as Protestants we believe that God declares us just 
and righteous in His sight, not on the basis of anything we have done, not on the basis of anything we ever will do, not on the basis of anything we ever could do, but on the basis of faith by His grace and grace alone. So this verse in chapter 3, verse 9, goes to the heart of the Reformation, goes to the heart of the Gospel. How is a man made right in the sight of God? That's the question. That's the question we have to answer. So let's jump into the text and we'll see how far we get. Actually, I know how far we're going to get. We're not going to get very far. We're going to jump into the text. And as we do, I just want you to keep in mind this one reminder. We've already looked at the previous context. We've gone over that in the previous weeks. One reminder. The Apostle Paul is addressing the false teachers. So chapter 3 is all about. He's addressing those Judaizers, those dogs, those evil workers, those false mutilating circumcisers that he mentions in chapter 3, verse 2. So all of this is written to answer them. They believed that they could be declared righteous in the sight of God based upon following the Mosaic law, based upon their circumcision, based upon their heredity, based upon the fact that they were Jews, that they were proselytes, that they were circumcised, their family lineage, and all of those other things. So Paul is answering that. And he says to them, if anybody has a reason to boast or grounds to boast, it's me. You think that something could make you unrighteous in the sight of God? I had everything that anybody could have wanted to make them righteous in the sight of God, but I considered it all as dung, scubalong, excrement, in order that I may gain Christ. And so verses 9 to 11 answers this question. When I gain Christ, what do I get? The number one thing, verse 9, you get a righteousness that is not your own, not derived from the law, but comes from God on the basis of faith provided for in Jesus Christ. That's the number one thing we get. Now look at the beginning of verse 9. The Apostle Paul says that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That I may be found in Christ. When Paul says found in Christ, he uses a word that literally means turn out to be or end up being in Christ. And it's not a statement of uncertainty as if the Apostle Paul is saying, I sure hope that I'll be found to be in Christ. I sure hope, oh, 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 please let it be so that I may be in Christ. That's not what Paul's saying. All the way through Paul's epistles, Romans, Galatians, Colossians, even here in Philippians, the blessed truth that the Apostle reminds us of is that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. So Paul's not suggesting that he may be found outside of Christ. He knows that he's in Christ. That's why he could say, I've been crucified with Christ. And that's the truth. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you are in Christ by virtue of faith in Him, you are so intimately and so closely connected with Jesus Christ that His death on the cross is your death on the cross. His burial is your burial. His resurrection is is your resurrection in the sight of God. So intimately connected with Christ and His work and His person are you in the sight of God that everything Jesus did is credited to your account. All of His obedience and all of His righteousness. So we're in Christ. But Philippians 3 verse 9 answers the question, in what way or how am I in Christ? And that's what Paul answers. And look at you've got your Bible open in your lap and I want you to read those words over again and I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul speaks of two different types of righteousnesses. Two different types of righteousnesses. Should that be plural? Righteousness? Two different types of righteousness. That's better. Two different, I know what I'm saying is not always grammatically correct, but I hope it's theologically correct. Two different types of righteousness. A human righteousness and a divine righteousness. Notice at the beginning of verse 9, I want to be found in Christ. I will be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own. That's human righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but look at the divine righteousness. A righteousness which is through faith in Christ, from God, on the basis of faith. That's the divine righteousness. There is a human righteousness, and there is a divine righteousness. There are two types of righteousness. Keep that in your mind. 
Now Paul differentiates between the two of them. Look at the human righteousness. First of all, it's a righteousness which is my own. Can I be a righteous person? Yeah, sure I can. I can have lots of human righteousnesses. Paul was a very righteous person in the eyes of men, humanly speaking, a very righteous individual before men and in human terms. Yeah, lots of human righteousness. I can have that. It's my own righteousness, and it's derived from myself. I create it. I sustain it. I attain it. I add to it or I subtract from it, depending on what I do with it. But it's my righteousness, and I derive it from some source, maybe from some source outside of myself or from some source within myself. But it's my righteousness. But then look at the divine righteousness. The divine righteousness is not my own. It's somebody else's. It's an alien righteousness. It's not my own righteousness. It's God's righteousness. And it's a righteousness that doesn't come from myself, but it's a righteousness that comes from God. And it's not derived from the law. It's derived from God. And it's communicated and imputed to me, look at the very end of verse 9, through faith. It comes to me on the basis of faith. Two totally different types of righteousness. So since we can divide the verse into those two camps, a human righteousness and a divine righteousness, that's what we're going to do. We're going to structure our thoughts around those. Today we're going to look at human righteousness and the inadequacy of human righteousness. Now listen, friends, I have a righteousness problem. Do you have a righteousness problem? You do. You have a righteousness problem. And simply stated, here's the problem. God is righteous and you are not. God is righteous, and I'm not. Furthermore, God is infinitely righteous. He is perfectly righteous. And the type of righteousness that I have never ever experienced, and never ever have made, and never ever have seen in any other human being. That type of righteousness. A whole different nature of righteousness. He is infinitely righteous, and I am not. He's holy, I'm unholy. He is sinless. I am sinful. Furthermore, God is not going to let any unrighteousness into heaven. Now that's a big problem, isn't it? He is righteous. Heaven is righteous. And I am not. And my presence is not righteous. So here is the plaguing question that all men must answer. Here is the most fundamental problem that we face. How can I, as an unrighteous man, stand in the presence of a righteous God? How does that happen? How can God let me, unrighteous Jim Osman, the epitome of unrighteousness, how can He let me into heaven, and how can He allow me to stand in His presence and all the while be just? How can God's justice and His righteousness be satisfied if He is going to treat me as an innocent individual? That's my problem. That's your problem. And that's a huge problem. But that is the problem that the Gospel addresses. Do you realize that in the New Testament, the Gospel is referred to as the Gospel of Righteousness? Because the Gospel of Christ is a Gospel of Righteousness. It's a Gospel that manifests God's righteousness. It's a Gospel that imputes God's righteousness. It is a Gospel that provides for man's fundamental problem, which is righteousness. My most fundamental central need is not to know God's purpose for my life. Is not to have a 40 days of purpose so that I can figure out what that is. I know what it is. I don't need to know what it is. I don't need nothing beyond what I already know about God's purpose for my life. My most fundamental problem is not a lack of self-esteem. It's not that I don't think I'm spanky enough in the sight of God. My most fundamental problem is not that I'm not believing God for enough prosperity, good parking spaces, provision, better cars, and better jobs. Those are not my fundamental problems. 
My most fundamental problem is that I am unrighteous. Completely so. And He is completely righteous. And I and you must face God on Judgment Day. That is our most fundamental problem. We have an unalterable appointment with divine justice in the sight of a God who is righteous, and we are not. Well, the Gospel is a Gospel of righteousness. Romans chapter 1. Familiar verses to you. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ because this is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And anybody, any kid here in Awana can quote that verse to you. What's verse 17 say? For in it, that is in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In the Gospel, the righteousness of God is manifested because it's written, the just man or the righteous man shall live by his faith. In the Gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is put on display and given to me. That's why it's a Gospel of Righteousness. Which is why in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul spends three full chapters trying to convince us of just how unrighteous we are. And he divides all of humanity into three classifications. Number one, there are the, the hedonists in chapter one. Those are the people who simply suppress the truth and unrighteousness, fulfilling the desires of their flesh, giving themselves over up to every form of impurity and greed. And they suppress that truth and they keep it down and deny that God exists because they have an immorality problem. That's the hedonist. Then in chapter two, he sets his sights on the moralist. You think that the law says you shall do this and you'll go ahead and do that? Don't you understand that you pass judgment on others and yet you yourself do the same thing that you condemn others for doing? What kind of a hypocrite are you? Then he attacks the religionist. You think that your religion and all of the benefits that come with your religion earn your righteousness in the sight of God? No. At the end of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul sums it all up and he says all have sinned. Whether you're a hedonist, a moralist, or a religionist, all have sinned. No matter what category you fall into, Jews and Gentiles, God has declared that all are under sin and we are all shut up under sin. And our mouth is stopped in the presence of God because we are all guilty. So how can I stand in the presence of God? I have to be declared righteous. How does that take place? On what basis can God say, Jim Osman, I'm going to treat you as if you are innocent, and I'm going to treat you as if you are a son, and I'm going to pour out my favor and my blessing upon you. How can he do that and have it not be a travesty of justice? How can he do that? Something needs to happen. Well, men come up with all kinds of solutions for our righteousness problem. One of them is that man has a a totally warped view of what righteousness is and how it works. You go out on the street, and I challenge you this. Walk out on the street this afternoon when you go to lunch. Just take an informal poll. You don't have to go any farther than this. Just walk around the restaurant. Walk down the street, wherever you're going. Walk around your neighborhood this afternoon and just start asking people this question. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? And you will find that more than 9 out of 10 people, more than 9 out of 10 people will say, of course. Do you think you're good enough to go to heaven? Well, of course I do. If they didn't think that, they would be here. Or they'd be at some other church. Of course they think they're good enough to go to heaven, so they don't need a Savior. And they will assert their own goodness and their own righteousness in the sight of men. Just take that informal poll and you'll find that everybody thinks that. You know why? Because in their mind, this is how righteousness works. It's on a scale. At the bottom of the scale, in their mind, you have all of history's worst people. Saddam Hussein, Uday and Kusay, Hitler, Pol Pot, Mussolini, all of the worst tyrants, the biggest mass murderers, Lenin, Stalin, Marx, 
all of the people, Darwin, all of the people who are guilty for all of the deception, rapists, murderers, perverts, then a little far up on the scale, you have people that are maybe not as bad. They haven't killed as many people, but they're sitting in prisons today. Maybe not six million people, but maybe six or sixty. So they're a little farther up on the righteousness scale. And then in the middle, of course, you have all of us common folk. We're sort of in the middle. We're not as bad as the people below us, but we're certainly not as good as the people above the scale. The people above the scale being people like Mother Teresa who do all kinds of nice works and and do all kinds of nice things for the community and they give themselves in the mission field and, and they're the priests and the missionaries and the pastors and the people who are really close to God. And then they say, up on the top of the scale is God Himself. So from the bottom to the top, you have the worst of people on the bottom and then this ascending scale of righteousness until you get up to God Himself who is the standard of righteousness. And so they think in their mind that anybody is able to attain to the standard of righteousness if they just have enough time. They can do enough works, do enough penance, do enough things, say enough prayers, be the nice enough person, reform themselves, and they will gradually over the course of time get up to the place where they would be just like God. We can attain to His righteousness simply by adding to our own righteousness through what we do. It's all wrong. That whole scale is wrong. There's not one type of righteousness with some at the bottom and some at the top. There's two types of righteousness. There's human righteousness and there's divine righteousness. And God's righteousness is a divine righteousness. And our righteousness is a type of righteousness that is completely other. It's completely different from God's righteousness. So we're not on a scale trying to work our way up. Friends, we're in a totally different type of camp. And when we're trusting in our own righteousness, we're trusting in a righteousness that's not God's righteousness, and we can never attain to that because it's a different type of righteousness. Paul says, speaking of human righteousness, he says this is derived from the law. Look at verse 9. Why does he say the law? What was the issue with the Judaizers? It was the law, but Paul could have specified any type of righteousness that we trust in that's derived from any source, be it heredity or religion or our morality or the good deeds that we do or any type of thing that we think that adds to our righteousness. Even if we're legalistic people and we think that by abstaining from certain things or doing certain things that we can add to our righteousness as if God gives us sort of a jump start on the righteousness scale by forgiving our sins and bringing us to Jesus. He just sort of gives us this chunk of righteousness and now it's up to us to build on that righteousness. It's up to us to add to it by things that we do, by living holy lives, by abstaining from every form of evil, by uh, by uh, denying the flesh and all of these other things. That's not how it works at all. There is a type of righteousness which is derived from the law and the apostle specifies the law because he has in mind those Judaizers, those who are trusting in the law for their salvation. But there was a time, friends, listen, remember, it wasn't too long ago for Paul when he himself had a righteousness that he had derived from the law. Did he not? When the Apostle Paul said, as to the law, in verse 6, I was what? Blameless. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, I was blameless. Did the Apostle Paul have human righteousness? He had it in spades. He had it in spades. He was as, he was as righteous as anybody could hope to be. He was as righteous as anybody could ever want to be. That's his point in 4 through 6. All of the human righteousness I could want, all of the human righteousness I could need, I had. When it came to the righteousness which is found in the law, which is a human righteousness, that's the righteousness that is my own, that I get from the law. When it came to that righteousness, Paul said, I had it in spades. I had it, I was blameless. I had it all. I had all I could want or all I could need, all of my assets. So did Paul have a righteousness? 
He had lots of righteousness, but he also had a problem. The problem is in Galatians 3, verse 21 and 22, where Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which could have given life, righteousness would have been by the law. What type of righteousness is he talking about there? Human righteousness? Divine righteousness. If I could have attained to divine righteousness through the law, then God would have just given the law and said, that's it, no need for a Savior. Just work it out, make it happen. Accredit yourself with righteousness. Work for it and you'll get there. But righteousness can't come by the law. There is no law given by which a man could be made to live again. There was no law given that could change our heart. No law given that could change my nature. No law given that could make me truly righteousness in the divine righteousness sense. The law could make me righteous in human terms. But if a law had been given which could have given life, righteousness would have been by the law. But divine righteousness doesn't come by the law. So Paul had to cast all of his hopes for divine righteousness, or human righteousness aside. I'm going to ask you to do something that I very seldom ask you to do because it drives me bonkers when preachers do this. I'm going to ask you to keep your finger here and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Some of you are saying bonkers. It drives him bonkers to do that. You're just now realizing that I never ask you to turn anywhere. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. One sentence to set up this context. You've got to see this as the Apostle Paul fleshes this out in greater detail at the end of Romans chapter 9. And here's the issue. For eight chapters, the Apostle Paul has been saying, Righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. Not anything I do, not the works of the law, not anything else. It's either grace or it's works, but it's not a mixture of both. How is a man made righteous? He's made righteous in the sight of God on the basis of faith. That was what the scripture reference, or the scripture reading in Romans 4 was all about. So then you get to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, and chapter 9, and you start to ask yourself the question, Paul, if it's true, if Abraham was declared righteous in the sight of God on the basis of faith and not circumcision or law, if that's the way it is, and if that's the way it has always been, as Paul has argued through the book of Romans, then this question needs to be answered. Paul, why didn't the Jews get that? When the Messiah came, and He came, and He died, and He presented Himself as the King, why did the Jews not understand this? Why did the nation reject Him? That's what he's answering in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. Now look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Why did the Israelites miss it? Why did the nation of Israel not get it? You know why they didn't get it? They were pursuing a law of righteousness, but it wasn't the righteousness of God which is by faith. And they missed it. They skipped over it. They stumbled over it because... They didn't pursue it by faith. They pursued it by works as if they could attain to the righteousness that God demanded through what they did in the keeping of the law. And they missed it. They, they tripped over it. Verse 32, end of verse 32 and verse 33. They stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it's written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Speaking of the Israelites. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Paul could relate, couldn't he? As to the zeal, what? A persecutor of the church. Could he relate to having all the zeal anybody would want? Oh, yeah. He had that in spades. They had a zeal, he said, but it's not a zeal according to knowledge. They lacked an understanding of something. They didn't have knowledge of something. What was it? Next verse. 
for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice two different types of righteousness. Do you see it? Not knowing about God's righteousness, they were trying to establish their own righteousness. And along comes their Messiah and says, you don't get it. You have to be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. And they didn't get that. And then the Messiah died and took upon Himself the sins of all who would believe on Him, sufficient to pay the penalty for the whole world, and they still did not turn to Him. Why didn't they turn to Him? They tripped over Him because they were trying to establish their own righteousness. And they would rather have their own righteousness than the righteousness of Christ. Have it by faith? Never. We'll, we'll fulfill the law. We'll get circumcised. We'll keep the law of Moses. We'll do all of these things. And the nation of Israel tripped right over it, fell flat on their face, because they would not subject themselves, submit themselves to the righteousness of God which comes by faith. And they were driving and striving to try and establish their own righteousness. And along comes Christ and says, give up all of that and I'll give you my righteousness. And they said, no thanks, we don't need that. We got our own. Two different types of righteousness. But the problem is that human righteousness is utterly inadequate to save us. Why? Because what does God require of us? Human righteousness or divine righteousness? He requires of us divine righteousness. It's a righteousness that cannot be maintained, sustained, or attained by anything we do, by any work of the law, or by anything in us. It's a righteousness that is completely other than the righteousness that we can create, that we strive for, and that we take pride in. I'm going to give you something that... I'm going to borrow this. I borrow most of what I say. I borrow this from Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Convention denomination, because this is good and it bears repeating. And I wish I could take credit for something that's brilliant, but I can't. The world has a radically different view of our problem and the solution to our problem than the Gospel does. The world looks at us, and the, and the world looks at mankind, not us as Christians, but all of mankind, and the world says the problem with man is he ha- is external to himself. Man has an external problem. Our problem is that the government doesn't spend enough money, we don't have health care, there's poverty, you grew up in a bad environment, your parents abused you, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's this, there's that, there's everything outside of us, right? All of our environment causes us these problems. Man's central problem is external to himself. And then the world comes along and says what you need is an internal solution. What you need is to think better about yourself, think more positive thoughts, release the giant within, and you'll be amazed at what happens to you in prosperity in your life and all of the blessings that will come when you release the giant within. The Gospel is the exact opposite. Man has a problem, but it's not an external problem. It's an internal problem. It's an internal problem. I am my problem. My nature is corrupt. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. It's not anything outside of me that gives me any problems. I am my own worst nightmare. There is a giant within. It is a giant demon of sin. It is a giant wretch. It is giant wickedness. It is a mound of dung. That is my problem. I am my problem. My problem is internal, not external. And the Gospel comes along and says, your problem is not external to you, it is internal. And the solution is not internal, it's external. What you need is not anything in you. Not to think better thoughts, not to do better deeds, not to be a better person, not to release the giant within. What you really need is nothing inside of you. What you need is something external to you. You need a righteousness. 
that belongs to somebody else that you cannot attain, you cannot gain because your problem is internal. The world says we have an external problem that requires an internal solution. The Bible says we have an internal problem that requires an external solution. Our problem is us, and we need a righteousness that's not a human righteousness. It's a divine righteousness. It's kind of like, and I close with this illustration, it's kind of like playing Monopoly. Monopoly is a fun game. I like Monopoly because I can earn a whole lot of money in a world that's completely other than this one. I can have a lot of things. I can buy things. I can be very cruel to people, and just and, and it's just a game. And I can push people sort of off the edge of the board and conquer everything, and, and that's sort of how I'm driven. I like the game. It's fun to play. All that colored money makes me feel really good when I've got stacks of it in front of me. But only a fool would take Monopoly money and leave their home and go to the store and try and buy groceries with it. Why is that? Because Monopoly money has no value in the real world. It's the same thing spiritually. There are people who spend their whole lives trying to acquire a righteousness that has no value in heaven whatsoever. And you can no more acquire enough righteousness, humanly speaking, to get into heaven than you can acquire enough monopoly money to buy a piece of land down on the waterfront. You can't do it. Why? Because the currency is wrong. You take monopoly money down to your realtor and say, i got $5 million here. I'll buy anything I want. And they're going to laugh at you. So you're gonna, you can't use that. Well, I'll just go home and get more of it. It doesn't matter how much you bring to them. You're not going to even be able to buy a dinner with Monopoly money. Why? It's of no value in the real world. Our righteousness, our goodness is of no value in the court of God. It doesn't matter at all. And when we stand before God and we say, look at all that I've done, look at all that I've created, look at all of my righteousness. If it's my own righteousness that's derived from the law or from my heredity or from my morality or from my good works or from my Christian deeds or from something else that I'm trusting, my baptism, my parents, whatever it is, if it's a righteousness that's derived from someplace other than Christ, God is going to say to us, your righteousness is no good here. That currency doesn't work. It doesn't spend here. You cannot acquire enough of it to declare you innocent in my court. You are still guilty. As righteous as you think you are, you are still guilty in the court of heaven. And no amount of human righteousness can wash away even one of your crimes. So what do I need? I need a different currency, don't I? I need a divine righteousness. I need to be clothed by something outside of myself. I need to have something not of Jim Osmond credited to my account so that I will be able to stand in the presence of God. That is what the Gospel says. That is what the Gospel provides. Human righteousness is inadequate. It is inadequate to minimize the penalty or the pay the payment for even the smallest of my sins. It is of no value in the court of heaven. But God offers us a righteousness that's not human. It's divine. It's not by works. It's by faith. And it's not provided by us. It's provided by somebody else. That's the gospel. That's a divine righteousness. Now, we haven't even looked at the divine righteousness yet. We will next time. I hope we can do it all in one Sunday. I don't know. Can you climb Mount Everest in one Sunday? I hope I will be able to. This, friends, is the most liberating, the most awe-inspiring concept in all of the Bible that God takes our sin and He credits them to somebody else. And then He takes somebody else's earned righteousness and He gives it to us complete. What an awesome 
salvation. What an awesome Savior. Everything I need provided for in one thing. That's the righteousness of Christ. And this whole book is written about that one transaction. That is the central event around which every letter of this Bible revolves, salvifically speaking. The imputation of the righteousness of Christ to those who will believe and the imputation of their sin to a Savior who bore it on a cross 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that we stand before You not righteous based upon anything that we do. We have nothing. And so we ask that You would deliver us from all the deception that causes us to trust in ourselves, our own works, our own doings, and to cast ourselves completely on Christ. We look to You, such a wonderful Savior, providing such a perfect and complete and sufficient salvation. Thank You that in Christ there is nothing that we can add to it. Thank You that we cannot change it. Thank You, God, that it is by faith and not by works. We glory in that and we pray that You would cause us to rejoice in that and be satisfied with that goodness and that righteousness. And we long for the day when we will wake up in Your likeness and be able to experience and see that righteousness fully and completely in eternity. We praise You in the name of our great God, our Savior, and our righteous Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.